Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question. His choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. I can think of no one better to pose this question to than today's guest, Boris Vejadovsky. Yes, we had to leave the continent, but it'll be worth it. Boris teaches American literature at the University of Lausanne. He has published widely on American literature, including Herman Melville, Wallace Stevens, and of course, Ernest Hemingway. He is the author of Ideas of Order, Ethics and Topos in American Literature, and Hemingway, A Life in Pictures, which rests comfortably in the office I'm in right now. Boris's current project focuses on the formation and the framing of the American West. We're so happy that he's joining us on One True Podcast to play One True Sentence with us. Boris Vejadovsky, welcome to One True Podcast. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. It's great to see you. And so I have to ask you, what is your one true sentence and why? My one true sentence is from Cat in the Rain, um, a story that I've always found extraordinarily moving, a story that I almost accidentally ran into one day in Rapallo. I found quite accidentally on a foggy day the uh, the hotel uh, where the, the the story actually takes place. I found the war monument. And uh, and I've always thought that this was um, a very characteristic Hemingway story uh, about loneliness, about people who try to talk to each other and actually say more than they should, uh, even though people often think that they don't communicate. I think they actually say too much. They communicate too much. They know yeah. all too well what the other one means it's also about difficult gender relations and and about the relations between america and the rest of the world uh it's also about writing i mean the, there's all these dimensions and and i think that hemingway manages as is sometimes the case to pack everything into three two and a half pages and uh, which is absolutely remarkable we'll talk about the story and hemingway's uh, what Hemingway was getting at and his themes, but why don't we start with by reading the sentences that you isolated and then and then why they are so striking to you? So you asked me to pick up one sentence, and I cheated. I took two. <laughs> um, it's in the first paragraph of the story, and he's describing the war monument that uh, is it can be seen from the hotel room, and uh, it reads, "It was made of bronze." and glisten in the rain, it was raining. Um, I, so what, what's glistening in, in, the, in the rain is the, uh, is the war monument um, that they, they can see from, from the hotel room. And I, and I like the extraordinary simplicity, modernist simplicity of this sentence. Um, it could be the title of a poem 
by Willem Carlos Williams, something like yeah. The Young Housewife, or by Wallace Stevens, it could be The Anecdote of, Anecdote of the Jar or something of that order, um, with this rhythmic repetition of words uh, that the, the, the rhymes and the repetitions and the alliterations, uh, it, it's almost uh, from um, a, a modernist poem. Uh, it's also an image. Um, the uh, This uh, whole paragraph, but I think these two sentences in particular uh, form an image. Uh, they all of a sudden blur the rest of the world and all we're left with is this war monument and we're, forced to yeah. focus on it and to imagine um, this this glistening quality of the light on it, uh, which tells us a lot about the time of the year, the season, the contrast uh, with the summery day where everything would look so different, etc. So, so it, it, it's, it's this um, contraction of the image that I find extraordinary, it, and it's, it only leaves what's necessary. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a Poundian image. Boris, I mean, you're, you're touching on, you know, Pound and Williams and Stevens, and the, you're associating this first paragraph with the glazed with rain, rainwater beside the white chickens of, of William Carlos Williams. And I don't think Hemingway is frequently discussed as an imagist. And I, so is this a debt to imagism that you see in, in Cat in the Rain? I don't know that that Hemingway does this consciously, or that he wants to to produce an imagist uh, moment uh, in in the story. But in effect, I think that's that's what he does. Uh, he strips the sentence from whatever is unnecessary, and of course, we have in mind death in the afternoon and that sort of thing. But it's also uh, the, the the Poundian um, uh, imperative to take out from the sentence yeah. whatever you don't need there, and and he does so. Hemingway does so almost to the point of tautology. Right? He tells us it glistens in the rain. It's raining, and the the sentence that comes immediately after that speaks of the rain again. Right? Uh, and, and, and so if someone were writing that in their first year essay, maybe the instructor would cross it out, said, right. this is repetitive. You don't need to say rain three times. Uh, but but the, this, um, this uh, apparent tautology also places the sentences in, um, in, in a structure which is both sy- syntactic and paratactic, right? Um, syntactically, it could say something like, it glistened in the rain, and it was raining, right? But, of course, the end isn't there. Or it's paratax. It glistened in the rain. Usually, normally, whenever it rained, it glistened. That day. Yeah, right. It was glistening, right? So, so you have to make the connection between the two. But if you do... Uh, adopt either the syntactic or the paratactic structure, it gives the narrator, whom we haven't talked about, I mean, who says that, right? There's a narrator who says that. Uh, it gives him, him presumably, uh, shifting positions in that, in that story, right? Uh, um, so so who's, who sees uh, that monument glisten, uh, glisten in the rain? Um, is it the American wife, as she's called in the story? Is it just an omniscient narrator? How does mm-hmm. omniscient... You, you see what I mean? I mean, it, it opens up a, a flurry of questions about the narrative point of view. 
which is then echoed later in the story when that narrative point of view keeps keeps sh- shifting between the American wife, George on, on the bed, the omniscient narrator, and, and we're never quite sure uh, from which point of view we're saying that. No, that's a great point. And so one of the things you, you pointed out was that it Hemingway strips away only that which is essential. And how does the war monument serve the story? Um, would Cat in the Rain be successful or completely logical if it started with the second paragraph, uh, the American wife, you know, starting with the American wife? What does that focus on the weather and the object of the monument and the the scene. So we have, and just to just to point one other thing out before I um, hear your comments. So we have the monument glistening in the rain, the sea broken a long line in the rain, slip back down to the beach to come up and break again in a long line in the rain. Three, t- I mean that you're exactly right. Those would be those would be stripped away. It seems repetitive. So what does that first paragraph give us? It, it, it gives us um, a, a, a moment in time which is extraordinarily specific. Um, this is uh, a post-war moment. Um, this is a post-traumatic moment. Uh, like any war monument, um, the monument is there to commemorate publicly what a community wishes to remember. So it, 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 it's about remembering. Um, it's about loss, um, about cultural loss. Um, George on the bed, of course, is one of those Hemingwayan avatars of a veteran uh, who's been too close to the war, uh, who got his wings burnt, to use a euphemism. Yeah. And... And, and, and so the, it, it's, it's this, it, it also tells us that um, they're traveling there at a time when they shouldn't be traveling there. They're evidently out of season. Uh, there's nothing to be done there. And the, uh, and the opening of the story tells us that um, there are very few other tourists around. Um, the place is basically deserted. Um, they also, it, the, the paragraph also tells us that these are Americans uh, perceiving uh, this place because they're, they, it says they're on the second floor. But of course, this is the way Americans count floors. Um, no. so, so it, it's, it's an American view of Europe. I, uh, when, when I saw that, that hotel in Rapallo, I was offered by the man at the desk to go see the room. And of course, I, I immediately realized I, I'd been reading this wrong for the whole time because it's on the first floor. Uh, I mean, it's on the European first floor, but it's an un-American second floor. So anyway, it, it tells us about, about all, all these things. It, it's, it's after the war. It's a time when they shouldn't be there. And, and you start wondering, what are they doing there? Right. right. Uh, what, what is the point? And there's this pointlessness of traveling to countries that uh, tourists visit in the good weather and being there in the bad weather. Which would be bad luck. It happens to all of us, but evidently that isn't the point, right? And and the very repetition of in not just rain, but in the rain, right? Yes, it's cat in the rain and it's glistened in the rain and waves in the rain and and, and, etc. etc. It's in the rain. 
uh, is this dactylic uh, rhythm. Exactly. In and, the- and to go back to your uh, first observation, it doesn't seem like these Americans are observing that monument. And when you said that the monument is a, is, is, is a signal for the community, it's an emblem that you look at the war monument and you recognize what it, what it stands for. It seems like uh, these guys are too wrapped up in their drama to even appreciate the glistening of the, of the monument and what it stands for. Is that, is that fair? I think that's a great point because it, it brings us back to the question of the narrator. Uh, I, I, in Hemingway, as in just about any story, the most fascinating character is always the narrator, uh, whom you very often don't see at all and, and hardly notice because you take it for granted that words do come from somewhere, right? But we need to wonder who says that, right? Uh, who says the monument glistened in the rain? Yes. Uh, and, 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 and the same voice tells us that in the good weather, people would come and, and look at the monument, right? But this is not in the good weather. No. So there's a voice outside of the, the two um, characters who knows these things. Uh, um, and and, and, and in, indeed, the two characters seem to be impervious to that. They would not know that artists came out and... And painted and painted this scene in the in the better weather, the but in Hemingway's genius, it's a war monument and not a playground or some other object which rain can also glisten off. But it was in this case, it was a war. It was a war monument. That's that's a fa- that's a fascinating point. Uh, I also maybe maybe more broadly, we can we can think about Hemingway's one true sentence, and I'm just struck that of the millions of sentences that Hemingway wrote, something as simple as it was raining caught your attention. Is this a way that you read Hemingway throughout all his career, that his attention to the sentence or to the accumulation of sentences was, let's say, particularly Hemingway-esque? Or do you do you view this as more specific to his early period? How do you read Hemingway and the one true sentence concept? It, it seems to me that it's, it's more, more particular to his early periods, certainly, uh, whether it's conscious influence of people such as Pound, uh, or, or others is, is possible, but there's certainly, uh, an attention to, to rhythm, to, um, to the sound of sentences. Again, very close to what you find in, uh, in the poetry of that, of that same, of that same period. Um, there, there is also this um, this desire, I, I think, to um, to use the simplest possible words. Right? Um, the, the, that, the, these are words a, a three year old child uh, reads and understands, uh, and. Uh, and 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 we say that every day, right? The weatherman on 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 Channel Four says that every day, whether it's raining or not raining. We're not paying attention. It's almost phatic language. And Hemingway, um, like modernists in general, but Hemingway takes phatic language out of its non-sense, and all of a sudden we realize how much is at stake uh, in the simplest possible. Uh, statements, right? So yes, that, that, that's one way in which I like to, uh, to, to read Hemingway. Um, because otherwise, um, one true sentence, 
uh, has a sort of magical aura, which I found find uh, much more difficult to to deal with. What the, what does that mean, right? Um, one true sentence, true to what, true to whom, uh, and if it isn't true, uh, what does it mean, right? And if it isn't true, who do you betray? Uh, uh, what is at stake ethically, aesthetically, in that one true sentence? So, so I'm, on the one hand, I'm very attracted to, to, to this, and that's why I like sentences such as it was raining, rather than sentences that would like to appear as simple but are obviously symbolic and, and, and whatnot, right? Um, and, and, and I think that what's at stake here is the difference between literature um, and the scriptures, right? Um, both words are dangerously close. Both words mean roughly that which is written. And, and, and so what we're talking about is write one sentence, right? Yeah. But literature, uh, unlike the scriptures, do not, doesn't have a transcendental value. Right, it's it's not there to speak of some revealed or hidden truth. It is there to talk about what the sentence says. Right, N- nothing more than that. Right, and 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 so it it, it deprives um, this one true sentence of a magical, mystical value, which otherwise I I, I find I find quite problematic. Right, and and and, and smacking of some. American Puritan ethos, right? You have to be true um, to yourself, to to English, to literature, to what? Right. Well, that's that is really interesting because Hemingway uses that adjective "true" in so many different contexts, and I think it's worth asking if the word "true" always means the same thing to Hemingway or what the synonym would actually be. I mean, because you asked a string of very fair rhetorical questions about one true sentence really means one blank sentence, one authentic to reality, to his reality, to emotion. And when I see something like it was raining, I I think your description, your description of it uncovered for me that it's really a brave sentence to write. It's really courageous and self-confident of a young, especially a young writer to, to open himself up to that in, in such a simplistic way. Absolutely. And, uh, I, and, you know, had I said it, I would have said simple. You said simplistic, but that, that's exactly how many people must have read that at a time. And some of my students do, you know. Some well, I say, I say that because, as you said, a three-year-old or a weatherman could say the same thing without being accused of being literary. And so, yes, and Cat in the Rain also, which we probably unfortunately won't have time to get into, but also is sandwiched in between those interchapters of In Our Time, which seem like they're taking what you've been talking about this this uh, conversation and exponentially heightening the focus of of the one true sentence. Absolutely. And, 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 and true uh, is, of course, the very difficult uh, adjective to, to deal with here. Um, even if you try answering those questions in, in the way, those rhetorical questions in the way you, you just suggested, true to yourself, true to reality, true, to, um, you, you just 
you know, fall on open knives of, of further rhetorical questions. You know, who, what is your own self? Are, are you true to it? Do you know it? Uh, do you know the real? What is authentic? Et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, it never ends. Uh, so, um, but it's interesting that uh, Hemingway, I think, uses a, a very, hmm, I hesitate, American uh, word, true, right? Um, and and if you if you read Emerson, if you read Thoreau, uh, I, I haven't checked, but uh, you know I, I, I would bet on uh, that words such as true or serious, which uh, uh, Hemingway also uses quite often, are are words that that recur all the time. Thoreau uh, defines a true writer as a serious writer. It's almost you know verbatim Hemingway uh, in, yeah. in, in the afternoon, for instance. Yeah, give me some truth. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. Boris, would you please reread the sentences that we started discussing? I'm going to add a third one, if I may, but it's in the sequence, so I'm, I'm only cheating a little bit. Okay. It was made of bronze and glistened in the rain. It was raining. The rain dripped from the palm trees. Boris Vejadovsky, thank you so much for joining us on One True Sense. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Marco. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number, OneTruePod. Or email us at OneTruePod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh, <laughs>